Welcome to Hear Me, My Voice, My Story, a post-conviction victim services podcast. These podcasts were produced by the State of Hawaii Crime Victim Compensation Commission. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in these podcasts are those of the contributors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the Hawaii Department of Public Safety, the Hawaii Paroling Authority, the Crime Victim Compensation Commission, the State of Hawaii Department of the Attorney General, or the U.S. Department of Justice. Thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to Hear Me, the post-conviction victim services podcast produced by the Hawaii Crime Victim Compensation Commission in cooperation with the Hawaii Paroling Authority. The purpose of the Hear Me podcast is to bring awareness to justice professionals, advocates, victims, survivors, and communities about the opportunities for victim survivors to participate in post-conviction processes that affect their safety and their healing journey. Today's guest comes to us with a wealth of knowledge and experience from a professional standpoint, and sadly, a very personal experience that she's going to connect with that as well. We're so incredibly fortunate today to have Nanohe Botelo. She's an independent consultant to victims and surviving families of homicide and other violent crimes. She has earned her master's in science and counseling psychology and also has spent 30 years in the mental health field providing services to special needs children and adolescents with their behavioral changes. In 2011, Inohe's eldest son was shot and murdered in front of her home. Today, we're going to learn from her professional experience as well as her personal experience moving from victim to survivor. Okay, so we just heard a little bit about our, our guest today, Nanohe. And Nanohe, I, we are just so grateful that you're willing to spend some time with us today and share your very personal story and your very personal experience. And so, Don, I'm going to toss it to you. We just heard a very tiny bit about Nanohe, but um, help us get to know her a little bit better. Yes. Hi, and welcome, Nanohe. Thank you for being here with us today. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to start off by having you tell us your story and how you became an advocate for victims and surviving families of homicide and other uh, violent crimes. Um, well, I st- my advocacy journey started over 35 years ago in the mental health field. Um, I have my master's degree in mental health. And um, so I really started advocacy 35 years ago in my career. And um, that took me into being more um, in the legal field. I went from the mental health and I went into legal because my mental health field covered a lot of that, you know, worked with um, people coming out of jail and whatnot. So then I um, did advocacy um, time with the victim witness advocate program at the prosecutor's office here in Honolulu. And I also was trained as a child forensic interviewer here with the Children's Justice Center. I was doing that. I was doing um, uh, the child forensic interviewing when my son Joel died in, um, and was shot and killed in front of my home in 2011, um, January 2nd. And at that moment, um, you know, my worlds collided, my professional world and my pers- personal uh, uh, world just came colliding together because I had the hat of my work experience. And now I'm on the other side of the table as a surviving family member of a victim. And um, that was um, very trying for that that time. Um, My son, Joel, was shot, like I said, and killed in front of our home. And um, he died instantly at the scene. He was shot at close range. Um, There are other individuals, about nine individuals that came with him, and we found out that really this was a lying-in-wait situation where they laid in wait for my son and um, cornered them in our dead-end lane, and they had no way of escape. And um, so the shooter um, shot my son at close range and ordered my son to be on his knees at the time. And um, that was really difficult for us to hear because um, my, my son was a standout athlete as a high schooler and in college. And um, it just seemed beyond me that he would even be in a position where he couldn't escape. I mean, it blows your mind, you know. 
So that's when my worlds collided. Um, I was fortunate enough to have the experience that most families, I would say 99.99% of the families that <laughs> go through this do not have the experience of what's next. I did. And it was a kind of a double-edged sword because I was anticipating what was going to happen next, but I also had to bury my son and I had to be a, a mom and a wife and a matriarch of my family and a grandmother to my, my son's grandchildren. So it was literally, that's how it felt. It was a lot of families describe it as the world is falling apart. And although I did feel like that's, that's it, you know, my, my, my world is broken. You know, I had to keep my wherewithal. <laughs> Don't ask me how I did it. I had to keep my wherewithal to know, hey, what's next? Legally, what's next? Ask the right questions. Talk to the right people. Get a notebook. Start jotting down names, numbers. Tell, you know, everybody I was talking to. Because that's what I did as a profession. And maybe that would help me in a, in a way because it kicked in as an automatic. And so looking back, I'm like, that, that maybe that helped me to cope in, in a way because I felt like I had... A little bit of control, though my world was falling out of control. I felt like I had a little bit of control as to at least um, I knew what was going to happen next, you know, legally, every step of the way. Families do not have that. They fall apart. They're confused. They have no answers. They um, are looking for answers. What happened to my son in the first place? What happened to my child? You know, that doesn't come till days, weeks later, you know. And so I, I feel like my professional background really kicked in and I was able to manage. Um, but like I said, 99.99% of the population does not have that kind of experience. So I was very fortunate in yeah. that way. So, um, yeah. And so I was on the phone right away, you know, wearing my mommy hat and my professional hat. And it was hairy. <laughs> it was very hairy and it's scary. Even though I knew what was going to go on, it, it didn't take away my grief. It didn't take away the shock. It didn't take away the fear. None of that. It just helped me to manage the legal part because I knew that was going to be big. Everything that I could gather, everything, how I could advocate for myself. I'm advocating for families all this time, you know. I mean, yeah, my family's had problems and we've had run-ins. So, yeah, you know, that's normal. But to be the victim on the other side of the table now, I thought I have to be my own best advocate. <laughs> that's all there is to it. I have to advocate for myself and my family. Yeah. So that's what I did. Well, it's amazing for you to sit here and share your story. I really appreciate you doing that with us and how great it is that you had the experience behind you. Um, but for those families that don't, I'm just curious about some of the um I guess criminal justice advocacy programs or other people in the community that helped you along the path that you could share some of those experiences? What what was really helpful for you to get through? Okay, well, one of the first things that, um, and I'm not just saying this because we're doing this podcast, but this is true. One of the first things that really I knew about and immediately did was apply for Sabin. You know, because um, I needed to know where this defendant was going to be. And because we don't always get notified right away from the prosecutor's office. I mean, I get seven alerts before the prosecutors even notify me two three weeks later. So I always have to tell families, this is the service. Sign up because you will know where the defendant's physical body is every step of the way as you as you um, once the arrest is made. Um, so off the back that's what I did I mean norm, really that's I signed up for the seven because I needed to know where is this guy you know um he lived in our neighborhood he knew my son his family still lives in the neighborhood I have to drive by their house every day I go back and forth to my house so I needed to have the comfort of knowing okay uh, are we safe is my family safe is he in jail is he we moved you know what is it so that's my first the first thing that I did and that was one of the more helpful things um, because I knew of the advocacy part and how to advocate my, myself. I was my own biggest help because I was a victim witness advocate and we're very limited as to what we can share with families um, on the legal realm. And all we can do really as an advocate, I would give families a book, you know, and a pamphlet and say, this is the flow chart. 
and yeah, they're a blank, you know, they're, they're not getting it. And so, um, you know, for me, I think that because I knew it helped me, but I have to, um, families that I've worked with now for over 10 years, and I've worked with over about 24 families in homicide and other violent crimes, and I'm still do, I'm still working on a huge case too. Um, I have to um, help them to understand every step of the way because they're not being notified properly and or here here's a pamphlet and they turn to me and look at me and go what's a preliminary hearing what 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 is a um arraignment how come he's not in jail when they uh, first arrest him you know there's all these processes and steps that go through that they're lost they want because victims think like we all do until you get in the system or work in the system Oh, he com this person committed the crime. They're going to be arrested. They're going to jail and they were going to have a trial. You know, not that that, that is true, but not uh, in the way that, you know, we educate families because it takes a long time. It might take a long time for an arrest. It might take a long time for a charge. It might take even longer for a trial. And to get through the whole process, I'm almost 11 years into it. We still have to attend HPA hearings. And I'm 11 years. Some families have to wait two, three years to even get to the trial phase. So, you know, the public is is very, um, you know, unaware of the fact that we don't just go pick up the guy, arrest him, convict him, and he's thrown in jail, and now he's at the trial six months later. No, <laughs> it doesn't happen that way. And I always tell families that there's no such thing as a slam dunk case legally, you know, because we all, oh, we know this, he did that, they did that. Legally, there's no such thing as a slam dunk case, no matter how tight your case is, because there's the jury, you know, the jury's made up of peers of 12 peers. And if one juror says not guilty or has any reasonable doubt, that is the design of our our system. Um, so there's no I have to tell families that right away, that there's no such thing as a slam dunk. And it, it's a marathon and not a sprint to the finish, you know. Obviously, I'm 11 years in, so it's a long marathon, you know, uh, but that's the truth. And um, that's that's how I have to deal with the families that I work with. So, Nanohe, can I ask a question? Because I, I think you made a couple of really good points, really important points. One was that you were working in the system and kind of believed that you um, knew what that process would look like. But it's a whole different thing when you are the one that is you now kind of at the mercy of the system. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that um, it, Hawaii actually has some really um, good things that I would like to actually take and model throughout the country, to be honest with you. And those victim witness programs within the county attorney's office or the prosecutor's office. Um, and I think you said you actually work with or for one, right? Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit for our listeners about what the role of those advocates are? I mean, I think it would be really good to kind of talk a little bit about what their role is and in, in, in how you see them being able to support victims. Um, and then the other question is, is can you, you mentioned Savin and I got super yep. excited because mm -hmm. I think there's so much um, that Savin can do to kind of create that, um, that foundation for victims. So would you be willing to talk a little bit about your experience with, you know, where the, what the benefits are to that victim witness program within the prosecutor's office and also kind of what the role of Savin, what, the, what it does and what it did for you. I was an advocate for 35 years, okay, in the mental health field and worked in um, also other legal matters that my clients had. Um, that advocacy, because it was done um, through nonprofits, through um, other uh, services, yeah, provider services, I had more leeway to speak directly to victims and their families in a counseling fashion because I'm addressing, because that's my background, I'm addressing that their trauma, the shock and awe of it all, first of all, um, the trauma, the uh, fear, like I said, the anger, the denial, all of these things I'm working with families for before I got to the prosecutor's office. I would 
you know, keep um, keep them abreast and always check in with the family. How is the family doing? How's grandpa doing? You know, people are sick. People are might get a heart attack. You know, they ha- I I've had families be so under stress. With everything people are getting, their families are getting, all their ones are getting sick. Yeah. So you know, that was my role as a um, outside of the prosecutor's office, and I assumed that would still be a big role when I got to the prosecutor's office. Um, but I discovered not long after I was in the prosecutor's office that it's not quite the same kind of advocacy because now you're working with a, a government agency, a legal government agency. So there's things you can say and things you cannot say. So some of the things that I would normally say without that hat, um, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do that as much as I was used to. You know, um, and what and and really helping families all the way through. You know, they have questions about all kinds of things. You know, so I found out right away as a victim advocate with the Department of Prosecuting Attorney um, is that the role of victim advocacy there is a little different in that because we are state controlled and government controlled, and there's a lot of illegal issues. I was um, not able to do as much as I normally would do. So I had to really learn. It was a learning curve for me to back away a little bit. And then I was going through a little bit of um, dichotomy for myself because I've been doing this for 35 years on one hand. And all of a sudden I'm going, this is a different kind of advocacy. You know, I mean, I, I can't really get into every case, but I've had cases where I was told, no, you can't do that. No, you can't say that. No, you can't help a special needs child in that way and that's where I came from so it was a it was a challenging uh, Lydia for me because I had to learn relearn the role of an advocate under a state government um, that the prosecutors the legal government here um, on how to be and as an advocate and I it was it was hard for me because I'm more um, you know my career has been more what we say in Hawaiian is malama. The families take care of the families, make sure that they're okay because to help them to get through this process, they have to be, um, you know, in a, in a different place, right? Then, you know, we're, we're trying to calm them down, right? So as an advocate, um, as a prosecutor's office, I, I was really, I felt limited by what I could do. What I could do was to give them the book about grief and last goodbyes or not being able to say, uh, not being able to say goodbye, give them an org chart. This is, you know, how it works. You're going to go through this, this and this, and then send them on their way. Yeah. So there was no, I could give them counseling referrals, but I couldn't counsel them myself like I would in my career, right? So it was really a challenging situation for me because it was a different, a whole new different ball game. The advocacy advocates at the prosecutor's office do do well, but mainly it's keeping the families abreast about this court date, that court date, this, if you need help, call me. Um, And I was more like, I'll call you. Don't wait for me to call you. I mean, don't don't call me. I'm going to call you. You know, I'm, touching bases with them. I'm, I'm reaching out, making sure that they, you know, they have any questions all the line. And I find that to be helpful as an advocate period, because I think it builds trust in a very fearful time. It builds um, dialogue and in a, in a time where nobody, they can't, they don't know who to talk to or who to trust. And so I, I've always taken that stance as a person and as a professional and so it was a little different for me at the advocate, uh, the prosecutor's office, um, because there were certain limitations that, um, you know, prevented me from doing that kind of work. Yeah. So, no, no, hey, I think what you've really illustrated here, which is such an important um, piece of information, and that is that there are different kinds of advocates, right? We've got the community-based advocacy that are not part of the prosecutor's office that really do that. Uh-huh. And then you've got your victim witness counseling and those counselors that are part of the criminal justice system that provide that information and that opportunity for a voice. But it's a little bit different because it's really 
making sure that you, the survivor, have the information and the tools that you need to kind of continue to move through the process different than a community-based advocate or somebody who's doing kind of that therapeutic advocacy. So I'm so glad you raised that really important difference there. Can you talk just, um, and I know Don's going to want to jump in here because she's got a really an important piece of this too, but can you just explain a little bit about your experience with SAVIN and the importance that you see with the SAVIN program in Hawaii? Well, like I said earlier, you know, the, one of the first things that I, I made sure to do after the defendant in our case was arrested and he was taken to Oahu Correctional Facilities is signed up for SAVIN right away. Because like I said, I ha- I was going to get direct notices from the SAVIN program, whereas I would have to have waited, and I still do, waited for the pro- it to go, the prosecutors to get the word and then they get the word that there's an HPA hearing or that the defendants can move. SAVIN immediately notifies me the person is being moved. I don't have to wait. And that was critical for me um, because at least I, like I said, it was a safety issue for me and my family. It was critical for me to know where his body, his physical moving body was because I needed to make sure that in our unsafe time of this is my house, you know, I needed to make sure that we were safe um, as a family and there wasn't going to be any more whatever retaliation or, you know, it opened up a whole can of worms. Like I said, we're neighbors and we know of each other's families. So it was really critical for me to have that information right away. And that's what Savin um, gave, gave me and still does, you know, um, to note the notifications and um, of what's happening, if he's been transferred from one jail to another and then to another, if he's back on the island for HPA hearing, I knew that. Savin allowed me to have that. And right. so that's that's what's good about that. Well, and I think what I just heard you say is Savin's more than just providing you information. It helped you with those safety and security concerns and your ability to be able to predict and prepare what was happening next. And and so um, I'm just, thank you so much for taking an extra minute and and sharing that. Don, I'm going to toss it to you. I know you've got a, a question next. Yeah, well, actually, I just wanted to thank you so much for doing the Savin um, commercial. Um, I have to say, because there were several people that have contacted us um, because of that commercial. They saw it and they said, oh, I didn't even know this existed. And so they reached out to us and and that was the only way they knew about us. So I have to thank you so much for that, because that was worth every bit of that. (laughs) So, um, you know, just that's this is such an important service. And it was so important to you and you wanted to get the message out there and you have definitely helped other community members um, mm-hmm. find help. So uh, I wanted to thank you for that effort. Um, my next question is more about the post-conviction piece. So you talked a lot about, you know, the forefront, doing seven right away, talking to a VW advocate. Um, at the victim witness, at the prosecutor. So post-conviction, once they were kind of done with, you know, they're in jail, what kind of services were you provided or not provided and wish you had um, while you were going through that process? Um, We weren't provided any services. um, And that was troubling. And even with families that I work with now, I you know, I have a list of resources that I use now that people that I know are really good at trauma therapy, you know, um, specifically when it involves homicides, it's a totally your loved one has died. So the different kind of services. Um, so, no, you know, we didn't have um, a lot of referrals through the prosecutor's office. And when they were, they were like to, you know, say, let's just say helping hands this is a general um, general service provider. But then you have to look for me. And what I do now is I look for trauma specialists because <laughs> that's what victims need. They don't need to, you know, say, OK, well, you just need to go to counseling. You need to have a specific kind of counseling. If somebody in your family is raging and acting out, they need to have specific kinds of, of, of therapy as individuals and as a victim. If you got shot. You need a specific kind of therapy. And when you get a general list, the families have to go, I don't know who that is. Where's where is that in town? No, I don't want to go to town. Oh, you know, do are 
is this family's first language English? Do we have non-English, you know, providers out there, which a lot of our, we have so much diversity done, you know that. We need Ilocano, we need Samoan, we need, you know, all kinds of different um, vernaculars here. So, you know, you have to look at that. But when you get a list of, of people and say, okay, well, here's a list, that doesn't help. We need somebody one-on-one -on -one to say, you know what, I know this person, they specialize in this, go see them. And, or I make a call, hey, can you, are you taking new clients? Yeah, okay, I have a client I want to refer. You know, yeah. so that builds, again, it keeps the trust factor between me and the families I work with and saying, hey, this is a person that I trust. If they're trusting me and I built a report, then I yeah. could say, go to them. And you know what, Don, you know, in Hawaii, a lot of local people, they, they're skeptical. And they're like, well, who is this? What for? How come? If I say, after working with the families for months, to say, look, um, this is a good person. I, I trust them. I've referred people to them before. Here they are. And I hook them up. That's great. They yeah. normally will follow through. Yeah. If you well, and a piece of paper and say, here's a list of providers. That's not helpful. Right. Yeah. Because it's their personal story, right? They, they want to share it with someone that they can trust. So I'm, I'm glad that you've been able to do the research to find that clinical support for yes. them um, to get through that. Um, stage of their journey. I wonder if there were some um, programs you wished were there for you to get you navigating through the criminal justice piece specifically. Um, if there were programs, what were they? If there weren't, what kind of um, program would you be looking for? What kind of information would have helped you more through that right. stage? Here's my spiel. Years and years ago, back when I started my career, we had people, um, there were different agencies, but I'll just name Helping Hands. Helping Hands had a 24-hour, 24-7 line. And um, I knew individuals um, back then, parents of murdered children. Um, a, a neat lady, uh, Nadine Onadera, um, used to do ride-alongs with the police and volunteer her time to go with the police or respond at the same time and be able to be there for the families exclusively because the police are doing an investigation and that's legal. Um, all that legal stuff, you know, crime scene tape, everything. I feel like we need to bring that back in terms of having somebody as a response team specifically for victims and their families, because you might arrive on the scene and this mom is going over here. The dad is going over here. The brothers are fighting over there. Somebody has to have a calm head in all of this and get in there and say, here we are. We're not the police. Because at that point, they don't know if the police are their friends. You know? So we're not the police. We're a separate agency or we work in conjunction with the police that can offer you and your family Here's what's next. After the, the, the cars drive off or the ambulance leaves your house or whatever, these people are going to be there. And you know what? They should be an eye, in their eyesight that I will be here for you for the next month. Let's just say randomly. Call me. I'll call you every other day. We'll check in. Anytime you need me, my phone is on. That's what families need right then and there because they are so um, shock, in shock value that they don't know what to do next so yeah you know they're like oh my god you know the shock of not having your loved one there is huge I'm you know so if we could get back to something like that where there is an immediate crisis team response and I know there are but they're just um can be better you know they can they can be better they can uh, um use more resources and use mainly the the part about we're here for you separate and only for you. So you right. are free to ask us any questions. You're free to say stuff that you wouldn't want to say to the police. I mean, not legal stuff, but, oh, you know, their grief, right? Their anger. Oh, man. I can sit there with that. We, sh we should have a crisis response team that um, employs trained clinical therapists, trained trauma therapists, trained, trained social workers that will continue in that initial phase because really... The victim witness advocate through the Department of Prosecuting Attorneys may not get their case for weeks. You know, right. it really depends. So there's nobody there for them. Um, so that's what I'm working on. That's kind of what I want to see happen and getting back to, uh, you know, 
30 something years that I'm dating myself, but we used to do that. And um, it was really good, you know, so I, I hope to see more of that really. No, no, no. I think you have such an amazing view and vision, both from the professional side and the personal side of somebody who's experienced this. And that's why I think um, it is such a gift to have you with us today. So a question that I have for you is because we are going to be working on some training and some things that we can do to support the the, um, the supporters and to support the survivors in Hawaii. When you look at how things played out after the trial, okay, or after the, the system played out, and, um, and I think you just really articulated the importance of how how people are in experiencing trauma and it, it's day-to-day trauma during the system, right? So once that happens and there's a decision made and in your situation, it was one decision, another decision, in other situations, somebody might have a different path in their, the, the offender might have a different path. Mm-hmm. So when that sentence comes down to the person who has caused the harm, right? the offender, the person who broke your heart, right? Do your questions change and do your needs change now that there's kind of been that system response? And after you answer that question, I want to challenge us to think about what is our responsibility to respond to your needs, right? Because your needs, you just articulated so many needs in that crisis response time. But I think all too often, we think it just ends then for the victim or survivor at sentencing. Yeah. So will you share a little bit with us about how your needs changed once that sentence happened? And then did you know where to go to get the answers to your questions? Well, let me say that um, just because there's a sentencing our needs don't change because sentencing um, is not the final. You know, a lot of people say, oh, okay, he's sentenced and he's in jail. We still have the appeals. Okay, a lot of families I work with do not even know. I mean, they hear about it, but they don't realize that this is also part of the judicial system is appeals. Okay, so when you're going through, you know, even at the time of the incident and then people say, oh, is he rested? Good. He going he going to trial. No, you have to have a conviction. (laughs) You have to have a sentencing. Then you start the appeals process. So, you know, um, I think that's a myth to think that sentencing ends it. We do feel that. Okay, I'm not saying no. We feel that, oh, there's a sense of conviction. But what if there's not a conviction? What if there's a mistrial, hung jury, or an acquittal? The acquittal is not the end all either for these families. They have to go, okay, if there's an acquittal, now what? This guy just walked. Okay, so there's different needs now. The needs have changed. And sometimes they get more emotional. And sometimes there's a little bit of lull. But throughout the process, the, the victims are always kept in the dark in terms of these legal, legal, um, these legal steps and stages that they have to go through, because we just automatically assume A equals B equals C, done, conviction, sentence, done. It's not done. We're still not done. So in terms of what um, the system needs to do is educate the families more that this is a, like I said, a marathon. Even after this, because we know what we're looking for. Like everybody likes to use the word closure. We're looking for an end to this. <laughs> There's no closure in our hearts ever. Okay. No conviction will bring that. Um, so the word closure, I don't use, but there's systems to the steps that go on and we want to stop it. <laughs> we, we just want to say, get us out of the judiciary court system. Period. Right. And when is that in a long time from now? And that's really yeah. sad for me. That's really heartbreaking for me, not only to have experience that I knew it, but to tell families, like we have a big case here in Hawaii right now I'm working on, and to tell families, hey, it's not going to be done because the court date is set in January. You have continuances, you have motions. This could drag on for many years. Then you would have a conviction, yay. 
we're all happy for conviction. Um, we feel relieved, but we don't get closure. Now we only start the next phase, which is the appellate right. phase. Right. So that's a whole nother thing. What? He can appeal. What? Yeah. You know, we're starting a whole nother phase on that on that front. And when even the appeals process is done, right? Now you're looking at, okay, when is he going to be released? And now we, we talk to the HPA about minimum here, sentencing and all like that. There's no easy so answer. I think, that, that. I, mean, I think you, you just absolutely could not have articulated that any better. It's like you're so consumed with what the process looks like and trying to absorb the information while you're also trying to move forward with your healing process. And so I know that that Dawn has got a question here that I know that she can't wait to get to with this, this kind of how do we support you post-conviction? The one thing I want to say before I toss it to you, Dawn, is that, you know, hey, you're absolutely right. I had a very dear friend of mine whose son was killed in um, in a drunk driving crash. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he said, closure is for all the people that it didn't happen to. Yeah. So they can get back to doing what they were doing yeah. before your world fell apart. Wow. Closure is for everyone. Down. Right. Yep. I'll send it to you. But yeah. seriously, it's about closure is, is more about the system and the process so that, and it's not even the system and the process. I'm guessing it's family and friends who want the survivor to be able to be able to have some closure so that they can come back to supporting them in a way that they knew knew before yes. this happened. And so it is really all about everybody else so they can go back to doing what happened before your world fell apart. And so Don, I'm going to toss, toss it to you, but you know, I'm, you know, I'm so sad, happy that you said that because it's so true. So go ahead, Don. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I think, you know, Hey, um, it spoke very well to this point that there's just, it's an ongoing process forever. And I think a lot of um, victims during the criminal justice piece feel lost after, you know, the sentencing, for example, happens. And then what? Now what? You know, like you brought up, there's minimum terms, there's appeals, there's all these other things, which is why we developed this post-conviction uh, victim advocacy, advocacy program because there was that gap there. Yes. And we heard from other victims that nobody cares after nobody cares about me after mm-hmm. everyone's moved on. Like Lydia said, everyone moved on with their own lives. And now what? Yep. Um, and so I think it's important that we develop this post-conviction victim advocacy program so that we can help with minimum term hearings, parole consideration hearings, early discharge considerations, and helping uh, victims with victim impact statements, how to draft yep. them. What does it look like? Yep. Are those things that you feel would be useful during this stage? Um, yep. And if you could give a little bit more of what we could help you know, with this program, what else could we implement to help during this stage? Well, a lot of, I think a lot of victims and their families think, oh, you know, well, what is it? What is a victim statement impact? And is the judge really going to hear me? Did they know me? You know, do they know the situation? And, and are they going to understand what I'm going to say? Because if they're not, I'm not going to say, I don't want to do it. Okay. So what I tell them to, I tell them is, I know it's difficult to say that but they need to hear your voice because you are the family members and you speak for your loved one. You know, you are now, you are the voice of your child, your mother, your kid, you know, it just is so important for me to drive that piece home because guess what? In our state, because we don't have a constitutional amendments for victims here in our state, that is our only, and sad to say, that is our only time we get to speak. We don't get to speak on the stand, how, how we loved our loved one. That doesn't matter. You know, I mean, unless you're a witness, we don't get to come up and say, my son was, you know, a wonderful father. And da, 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 da. We, the only time you get to do that is during the impact, in, a victim impact statement. And that's why it puts humanity into your child, into the case. Okay, I always look at... Oh, the case, right? Let me tell you, there is a human being attached to that case and their name is Kathy, whatever. She was a mother. This has to 
be an important part of what we do because it helps the families to heal when they hear, oh, not the case, or, or the case gets called by the defendant's name. If the victim's name is state against so-and-so, right? There's no victim name to that. And, and that concerns me because that totally negates the idea that another human life was taken. And, and it, it's a problem for me. It, it, for me, I mean, I'm advocating to get that word in there because we have to acknowledge that someone died as a result of this. Not just any, you know, okay, here's a defendant and state versus Joe Blow. Yeah, we have a victim attached to this and they were loved. They were a parent, they were a mother. And that has to bring the humanity back into what we are doing here for victims and their families. And you know, I have families tell me that because I've, I've said, no, use, you use your daughter's name, you use your son's name in the victim. And don't, don't say, oh, he was a father, you use their full name yeah. because that gives them their humanity. And that's, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little choked up here. This is, this is close to my heart. We have to put humanity into these people's lives. And, and that's how families saying, so thank you so much. You know, I know that was really hard for me, but it made all the difference for the judge to even call the person by their name. Come on. You know, I mean, these people have names and um, we're not the case versus, versus, you know, John Smith. That's my kid. It should be right. Joe Botello, you know, just whatever. But we, we don't have that um, in our system in terms of naming the victims on a regular basis in a legal system. And we have to do that. I, mean, I, I think you're so right. And I think that especially as this um, plays out and we continue to talk about healing and that there is no closure, because I think when the state closes their case, it's the state closed their case against the uh, the defendant, right? Yeah. And then the the voice of the person, the victim or the survivor, yeah. is kind of lost in the abyss of paperwork. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you this question, and um, I I hope it's okay because it wasn't part of the questions, but you absolutely um, laid this question on my heart. So I'm gonna ask you: Can you tell us a little bit about your boy? Oh. Tell us a little bit about Joel. Tell us a little bit about who he was and who he continues to be um, through your work and your advocacy. Um, my son has continued to be my inspiration for the work I do now. The day after my son died, he beat me, he built me, well, months before he died, he built me a beautiful deck that overlooked the water, um, the ocean. And I, we would always sit on the deck and talk, start out kind of our plays together. I, the morning after he died and the sun was rising, I was on the deck with my son. He passed, he's, he's with me. I'm, People, all people, when you lose a child, they'll say the same thing. They still feel them. I felt my son and I just cried out uh, to the universe and said, this has no meaning. This is all for naught. This is all in vain. And I cried that out from somewhere deep in my soul, you know. And the response that I got, not audible, but all will be well. Didn't feel well, but all will be well. Mom, that's how it came. And I relaxed. I was able to breathe. I said, okay, we're good. I'm not good. I'm not good in that sense. But I had a, a sense that this is going to catapult me into something wholly other different than I could ever imagine. <laughs> you know, it wasn't my career path. Um, but I had that sense right away that this is going to be taking me into dimensions I don't even know yet, you know. But I was like, okay, my son was a loving father. He had an awesome football career ahead of him. He played as an all-star athlete here. 
and had many awards for that. He had awards his first year of college in Montana in the snow, which he thought, you know, he couldn't play in the snow because it was freezing. He was a Hawaiian boy. Um, he got MVP. Um, he was very successful. He went through trade school and a journeyman and earned his carpentry um, license. I mean, contractors um, thingy, you know, license. And um, he took care of his kids, a hands-on father, you know, and he said to me, I, you know, when he had his, his young ones, I said, son, you know, when he was still going through college and stuff, I said, um, listen, we'll take care of the baby. You go on to play ball because his goal was to play ball two years away and come home, right? You go play ball. He said, mom, no, I'm the father and I want to be the best father I can be. And if that means that I'm not playing football anymore, mom, then I'm going to be the best father that I can be. And, you know, that said everything to me about him because he worked hard for his football career and we all did and we loved it. And he was talented, amazing on the field and off because we always told him it's not enough to be an athlete. It's you need to be a good person off the field. So people adored Joe. Joe was very loved. And in our community here, we had his funeral service at um, Hawaiian Memorial, which is one of our bigger, um, bigger cemeteries. The um, the manager of the facilities came to me and said, you know, this is the biggest funeral we've had here since one of our beloved musicians, Gabby Pahinui, died and had their services there. He said, this is the biggest funeral we've ever had. Your son was really loved. And seeing that and knowing that we've got letters from all over the world because of him, um, you know, shows me and that helped me when you ask that I knew other people loved him as much as me. And, you know, right. it, it helped um, to feel the sense of love from our community, love from people around the world to help me get through that grieving process, you know? I mean, this was a high, high publicity case and Joel is well known, so we got that, but there's so many families that don't, you know, it's just a forgotten yeah. go off into this funeral home over here, you know, and more families are like that than what, we had and you know I, I i consider myself um that was meaningful to me and helped me to um have the love and um, support of our friends and families all over the world that we knew loved us loved joe more importantly like i said as much as i did you know, and admired him as much as i did so that's just a little bit well and you know i think i think you just really highlighted the whole purpose of the title of this con of this podcast hear me we're continuing to hear from him through you we're continuing to hear that when the criminal justice or the juvenile or the juvenile justice or the justice system can we name that we should rename that yeah yeah (laughs) when when the system is kind of done with their piece those like you the moms the dads the siblings the friends the community we continue to heal and there is opportunity for the system to be able to navigate that healing and and we have opportunity to do that so i am going to give it to you don but i'm just i'm so grateful that we could just pause and and learn a little bit about this beautiful person that you brought into this world and that you is making a difference and um he's still making a difference even though he's not here. So Don, I'll toss it to you. But Don, can I interrupt? Because I want to, Tiffany, Lydia, you asked me this earlier about the healing process. You know, I say this all the time, Don, you you heard this, that for me, it was so much turmoil for so long. And the sentencing didn't bring me a healing sense. You know, it didn't, it, it brought one stage of the process finality, but it didn't give me a sense of, healing and I'll explain that what I mean in our case the defendant um, appealed and he won the appeal so we had to go either a to trial again or b take a plea deal yeah so I chose the plea deal because I was not going to put us uh, put us through that again um, it was high profile the first time and I did not want to go through that the second time so we agreed on appeal uh, 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 deal um, a plea deal okay He pled to the lesser, but to me, he still murdered my son. I don't care what you call it, but you're going to do time 25 on your agreement in prison. 
hearing him say at the plea deal, or change of plea, guilty eight times, with every guilt admission, guilty, guilty, eight times. I went like this. My body literally went from being like this to that's the moment I first time the whole process that I felt a sense of what we call justice. Justice is um, subjective, means different things to different people. We think justice is in the conviction. We think justice is in the sentencing and it is for different people in different ways, right? For me, hearing him say guilty eight times, I knew. I, I felt my son's. Good mom. Now your journey for healing begins. And that's how I took it. No, hey, your your story and how much love you had for your son and what you're doing with that now is, I mean, we need more people like you in our community because you're you're taking it, you're running with it, and you know, you just you have this passion that no one else could ever have. Um, so thank you for all that you do and the work that you put into the community and, and keeping Joel alive yes. with us every day. Well, I think with that, is there something you wish for that the system could do better with? Is there some some post, post-conviction or otherwise that you really think the system could do better at? So I'm going to use a catchphrase, yeah? Seamless, seamless services. Victims get keep falling through the cracks if you're jumping from this person and then the victim department prosecuting attorney and now you're going to be over at hpi and they're like which way do we go try to make that services tighter handling from one to the next and i I still know at the prosecutor's office while the hpa is going on but there needs to be something a little bit different in the middle um for for victims because we need to know now like like i said earlier the post-conviction is that it is we don't talk about appeals we're traumatizing victims again once they go what he can get out what he can go again okay that part of it post-conviction in the appellate process we need to get tighter services around victims because not only did they get a conviction but what he's gonna appeal and get out traumatized again after years of maybe kind of letting letting it like doormat some degree boom does that mean he's going to get out? Or the other thing is defendants getting released without families knowing trauma. Yeah. 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 So my thing is, and I have on my notes, is the seamless collaboration that might be my wish list, but more collaboration would be even better in terms of get, bridging that gap between the, the uh, criminal court into HPA system. Because you're really almost starting from scratch again, you know, and I, I think that's really important because, man, it ha- breaks my heart when I got to tell, oh, the defendant want to appeal. Oh, my God, that, that's my ooh, worst yeah. thing to tell, you know. Yeah. And so the seamless service part of it and having more, um, especially if there's appeal, we need even more counseling because tra- we're going through trauma again. We just reinitiated the trauma that we've been dorm- pushing back for so long. Um, now we need to, to d- address that. And I think that that service is really critical. If you ask me any critical service right now is between criminal court, sentencing, and boom, you're in appeals to HPA. That has to be close, close gap there and um, better service again through the same strategies. Do you have a team that can tell them about the, uh, the appellate court process you know and how long that can take years yeah and and you know you know hey i think you've, you've hit it because the, there's the appellate piece and then there is beyond the appellate piece right we don't know when our listeners will be listening to this podcast but as we record this right now it's the holiday season for us and you and i talked uh, as we started this conversation um, before we started recording around the fact that there are triggers and there are things in the lives of victims and survivors all year long yeah birthdays the anniversary of yeah. somebody's death yeah. um uh, other things that just trigger 
those that are still here and those that are surviving that nobody thinks about because yes. the system is done with their part. Yes. And so I am just so grateful to you for your willingness to share your experience. But also I just want to acknowledge that you and, and so many others um, continue to feel the loss and the pain and continue to work through whatever healing looks like Yeah, long after that gavel has dropped. Yeah. If it does drop, right. If it does drop. Yeah. If, if it, it does, does drop. drop. Yeah. yeah. So I know Dawn likes to, um, Dawn and I like to ask our guests kind of one final question. It's kind of that, you know, where do we go from here? So Dawn, you go ahead and ask it. Yeah, so we like to do kind of a call for action to all of our listeners. So I was just wondering if you had an idea that you could share with our listeners that is just one thing they can do right now to be an active participant in supporting victims of crime. One, you know, um, you know, that's my first response is to legislate, get the laws changed. Um, know your laws. I mean, the Dalai Lama said, know the law well, so you know how to properly break it. Not that we're going to break laws, but we need to know what the law is as individuals before we can train others, you know, in this. And for me, I, I read and in reading about advocate laws, I had to re read about defendant laws, too, you know, and study on that because they go hand in hand in a strange way. Um, so I would like to see, you know, families, first of all, do the seven for your own self. Speak up. You know, try to find your voice. Find. I always try to, you know, in my waiting of working with families, is there one person that I can identify that has good speaking skills, um, maybe can do some writing and to try to teach? And I, and I feel like I've been successful in that way because I've had a couple of families that were really dynamic that got it off right off the bat. You know, they, hey, auntie, they train me how what I need to do. I will do them. They did and, and they, they are advocates in and of themselves right now. And that is my greatest accomplishment. Thank you. Because I see them advocating for themselves. They, this is not my full-time advocacy job for your whole life, my families that I work with. This is up to you to become, my catchword is your own advocate. Yes. You know, because we can't lay asleep and deny and go, oh, they're just going to notify me. No, no. I am, I'm really happy to say that I've worked with about a handful of families right now that have taken the ball and run just like me. And they're on their own. They're building their own bills. You know, they're at, they're at their own legislatures. Auntie, can you come testify with me? Absolutely. Yeah. That is such a rewarding thing for me when I see them doing it. So if I can duplicate myself in that way, I feel like <laughs> I am in the community a little bit. It's like, here's your notebook. Call Auntie anytime you want. I'm like, and I'm so proud of them when they're like, oh, Auntie, I did this all right on, you know, and can you can you support my bill? Pam, that, that's really rewarding. I mean, yeah, you know, we have separate different families doing their thing in the community. Even right now, I can call them right now and they're like, we're on board. But I have that, that group of people that I have that I'm working with legislatively. I've also built a resource group for myself and clients that families that I work with. They say, hey, I... I know this therapist that does trauma therapy and have techniques for trauma therapy. So I build them up both ways. I try to build them up both ways and it's a juggling act. And I don't know a lot of people that can or do can do both. You know, it, it, I don't know. That's a question I have. But like I said, it, it's a success rate for me when I have one or two families or right now five families are advocating for themselves. I'm so proud. You know, I feel like, yeah. Yeah, so, totally. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that would be my thing is I teach, always tell them you're going to become your own best advocate someday. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> you're going to need it for a long time. You know, so. Um, so, yeah, that I hope I answered that question. Did I? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you and I vibe pretty well because yes. you know, at the end of every episode, I always say that we rise by lifting others, be present, be active and be educated. And I thank you so much, Nanohe, for sharing your journey with us and providing us with information that was helpful for you and areas that we can do better. It's all a full circle. So thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you, all of you, for um, inviting me. And I'm here. And I would like to do more. I'd like to do training with our service providers 
with our legal people, with different agencies and what kind of trauma specifically these families are needing. And, you know, um, I'm here, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to kind of transition into the training phase of this now because I'm at, at that point where I can do more of that. Um, so thank you for having me. Good to meet you, Lydia. So you've said it out loud. It's now recorded. It's now the gospel. So be careful what you offer. Okay. I'm good. The other thing. Um, so um, this has been a great gift to me personally, but I'm sure to everyone listening. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Remember, the goal of this podcast is to both inform and provide an opportunity for justice professionals, advocates, victims, and survivors to have a voice. So please consider bringing your voice, ideas, experiences, or stories to us so we can include you. If you have a question about something you heard today, or an idea for a future episode, or if you have an idea for a guest that you'd like to suggest, or would like to be a guest yourself, please contact us at postconvictionadvocate at hawaii.gov or at 808-358-8538. Remember, we would love to hear from you. And as Don Martin says, we rise by lifting others. You do that every single day. And we thank you.